The final verse of that song is interesting, isn't it? His grace will lead us safely home. I want to ask you this morning this question. Do you know what that means? Do you really know what that means? This morning we're, we're going to just do one final session. There's not going to be any small groups, but we're going to, we're going to leave the last words to God's words in His Holy Word to speak to us as we travel down the hill. And I want to speak to you this morning about what it means that God's grace leads you safely home. I think as a youth pastor, perhaps some of the the biggest questions that I see young students struggling with and questioning is the idea of assurance of salvation. How do I know His grace is leading me safely home? How do, I, how, do I, how do I answer that question? What does assurance of salvation look like for me? How do I know that I'm a Christian? What does it mean? What does it look like? What is the experience of assurance of salvation? Now, I'm going to answer those questions at the end. But I want to develop a... A, a theological foundation on which those answers are going to sit for you. I want to answer the question, where does assurance of salvation come from? And I'll give you, I'll give you a real a nice little short hint of what that answer is. And this will all make sense. It's this, the truth of Christ's resurrection Brings the believer assurance of salvation. The truth of Christ's resurrection brings the believer powerful assurance that they are truly Christians and that God's grace will bring them safely home. The, the ones with the strong faith are not necessarily those who feel strong, but those whose faith is connected to a strong and sure anchor in God's Word. I have a past life of repelling. I don't do it anymore. I'm too old. And I don't know how to, do, how to find a place where I can repel, so I don't really do that anymore. But in years past, I used to do a lot of rope work and, and harnessing and anchor anchor uh, tying and repelling and and it was always the worst experience to initially go over the edge you're 80 feet up you're 200 feet up and I remember once I went over this building to replace this this window on the side of this elevator shaft on this like 200 story uh, maybe I'm being dramatic 300 story building and going over the edge took my breath away I'm holding on to this rope. This rope is like this in diameter. And I'm looking down. I can't even see the people on the bottom. I can see a rope dangling down there, and my knees are, 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 are locking up. My legs are trembling. 
going over the edge is the worst ever. Because suddenly you're aware of all these problems, all of these potential crises that are about to happen to you if you go over the edge. What if this rope snaps? What if that anchor over there that doesn't appear to be very uh, tightly tied all of a sudden uh, breaks? What if, what if my harness comes undone? They let me tie this thing. What if my carabiner breaks and bends? I'm sure I've seen it before in my imagination. But I'll tell you this. All of those questions, all of those doubts, all of those concerns, all of those fears were reduced greatly when I began to learn about how ropes and anchors worked. But suddenly I had tremendous confidence, tremendous assurance when, when I realized how much weight that anchor could hold and how much weight this rope could hold. Suddenly I realized, man, there'd have to be like 20 of me on this rope together, like bouncing in order for anything to happen. And even then, nothing would probably happen. And suddenly, I had tremendous assurance that I would not fall down that building. Suddenly, I could go over the edge and just zip back. And that's because, not not because my emotions changed, but because my knowledge, my understanding of my situation began to change. Suddenly, I became fearless going over the edge. Now, if you will, turn in your Bible with me to the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes for a similar reason to you. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, Paul writes Ephesians for assurance of God's gracious power, God's strength, God's wealth, so that we... Believers who are reading this letter might have assurance to walk in a manner worthy of this glorious gospel to which we have called. Paul writes to give us assurance in the wonderful wealth that we have in Christ so that we may walk in a manner worthy. The whole letter is summed up in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the first part of Ephesians, Ephesians 1-3, through 3, Paul wants to cement in our minds what is this calling to which we've been called. What is this glorious truth that we stand on, that we walk worthy in? Paul wants to give us assurance, and this is what he does. In in chapter 1, Paul, in the the first uh, 14 verses or so, 3 through 14, he begins to articulate the glories of the blessings that we have in the gospel. Paul wants you to know all the things that belong to you, believer, if you are in Christ. For example, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are a believer, you already have all of that. Verse 4, He has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 is tremendous. He has predestined us for adoption. And notice this. Notice that. 
It's not just that you've been predestined for separation from hell and security in heaven. Notice you have been predestined for adoption to be in a permanently new relationship with God. Verse 7, all of this has been purchased through his blood. We have those glorious theological words like redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is how all of these blessings in Christ come to us. Verse 11, we see this, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Maybe your Bible translates that verb more passively. In, uh, in him we have been made an inheritance. It all depends on how you translate that verb, middle or passive. Verse 13 also, in him also we enjoy the sealing of the Spirit. As soon as we are saved, we are sealed with the Spirit. And now this brings us to verse 15. And you see this here for this reason. So Paul is building on these glorious blessings that the believer has in the gospel. And now he makes this pivot to begin to say, and this is how I am praying for you in light of these glorious truths. Paul now asks God the Father to graciously give all who read this letter now understanding, apprehension, awareness, a faculty of knowledge of the truths of the gospel. So similar to the the illustration with the repelling incident, right? Paul is writing that you might have assurance of these truths, a, a, a deeper, closer, intimate knowledge of these truths so that you may have assurance and you may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's read this prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital Spirit, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts then enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all let's pray dear God in heaven I pray as we look into your word now that we would be uh, we'd be awake we'd be attentive to see these glorious things that we might have assurance
in the truth of the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to see this not just as true in your word, but true for us as well as we are in Christ Jesus. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's prayer is basically just giving you three results of an internalized, of an internalized close knowledge of the gospel. Don't write that down. That's not my point. I'm just kind of outlining for a second here. Three results. I'm going to emphasize the third result. But three results if you have a closer knowledge of the gospel. First off, notice you have assurance in your past. Verse 18, hope in your calling. You have assurance in your future. Riches in his glorious inheritance in the saints. And you also, number three, have assurance for the present. The incredible power towards us who believe. I would love to talk about those first two results, but I'm not going to. I want to emphasize for you the glories of the final, the assurance of the present. What is this glorious power towards us who believe? And to that end, I want to give you descriptions. Descriptions. And the, the theme of camp has been to divide your messages into four points. So I'm going to follow suit. I'm going to give you four descriptions Four descriptions of this glorious power of God towards us who believe. Four descriptions of His glorious power towards us who believe. First description. It is an unrivaled power. It is an unrivaled power. It cannot be matched. It cannot be outdueled. It cannot be defeated. It is an unrivaled power. Now, Ephesus was a city that was obsessed with spiritual power. Matter of fact, they had a temple there uh, dedicated to the goddess uh, Artemis. It was a city full full of religion. It was a city that prided itself on being hospitable to every religion. They collected rituals and incantations. And the reason for this was they, there was this belief that spiritual power, control of your life, we'd use the word assurance in an uncertain world, was found if you could just figure out the right magical incantation to recite. If you could just find the right God to pray to for that situation or that moment. Uh, control, strength, power could be found in your life if you could just find the right God to serve. And since you didn't know, you, you tried to find as many gods as possible to serve. So they would be continually on the hunt for some sort of new magic words or incantation. And similar to a lot of, frankly, a lot of Christians today. Maybe it's similar to you. Continually on the hunt for some new experience. Some, some, some new opportunity, moment in your life that maybe will change things for you. And you'll have assurance because of that moment. Now, Paul wants these believers that live in this city to know the power of God that is already towards them who believe. 
And that's why he, he emphasizes this point. It is an immeasurable greatness, he says there in verse 19. It's off the charts, he says. It's unrivaled. It's, it's, it's without adequate comparison. It's, it's so great. Did you see this? It's so great. Verse, verse, verse 17 and verse 18 tell us that we need the Holy Spirit inside of us to even begin to grasp the power towards us who believe. That is how unrivaled this power is. It's off the charts. You could take a, a tape measure that is infinite in distance... You could jump into a rocket ship, if this was possible, attach that tape measure to the ground and to your rocket ship, and go as far as you can into space. And as soon as you get there, when your fuel runs out, you could say, it is beyond the beyond of that beyond. And that even wouldn't even wrap your mind around the power of God. It is immeasurable. Matter of fact, we, we get the sense that Paul himself is, is struggling to explain, to, to adequately describe the greatness of God's power towards those who believe. It's almost as if, in verse 19, he is using every word in his vocabulary for power that he can find. You know, when you're really bad at describing things, you just start listing off synonyms, and hopefully maybe it'll connect with people in their head. It's almost like that's what Paul is doing. Notice what he says in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And then the, the second part of that, according to the working of his great might. Actually, there, there's, three, there's three power words, even in that last prepositional statement. Uh, working, that's the, that's the Greek word, um, Energeo, which is where we get the word energy. It, it refers to cap- capacity. It's capacity, it's operation, in operation. That's what working is. It's an energy, it's power of the might, of his strength. It's, it's literally according or because of the working of his might, of his strength. And all of this is just to emphasize for us that this power is unrivaled. He runs out of words. It's off the charts. He can't measure it. He can't go adequately describe it. We need the Holy Spirit to comprehend even a piece of it. And all of Ephesians 1 through 3 is describing this. It's our wealth. It's our power. It's our strength in Christ Jesus alone. And so the application to this point is simple, isn't it? There is no situation, believer. There is no circumstance or situation in your life, either today or tomorrow or 60 years from now, that the power of God can be matched by if you are in Christ Jesus. There's no circumstance. And where is this power active? This is our second description. Pardon me if this is a silly way to describe it. It is a today power. It is a present tense power. It is a today power. It is towards the believer today. 
Paul wants them to have assurance of God's resources today. This is not open up their eyes about the future alone, although he does pray that. It's not open up their eyes about the past alone, although he does pray that. It is also open up their eyes for the present. And and notice this, all of Ephesians builds on this because of the immeasurable power towards us who believe. Uh, 6.10-11 says we can stand against demonic schemes and forces. Ephesians 2.10 says we can do the good works we were recreated for. Ephesians 2.14 says we can overcome racism, ethnocentrism in the church. Ephesians 4.2 says we can, you can, believer, actually put on gentleness. You can put on humility. You can put on patience. Ephesians 5.2 says, We can walk in selfless love as Christ has loved us and given Himself for us. Ephesians 4.22-24 says, You can put off attitudes and actions that belong to the former self and you can put on new actions, new attitudes that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the, the power that is at work in you. Ephesians 4.11-12 says, You can use gifts to serve others. You don't have to live a self-centered life. And Ephesians 5, 22, 25, 6, 1, 4, and 5. The whole end of Ephesians really says that, that you can pursue actual relationships that honor Christ. And note this, this is, this is not simply because you are tremendously great. It's because there is an immeasurable power towards you today who believe. Christian life is is not lived out by the two following descriptions. The Christian life is not rugged individualism. I'm just going to pull myself together when I get home. I'm going to put off everything I can. I'm going to keep doing everything that 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 I did here at camp that made me feel great. And I'm going to do it because I'm determined There is determination in the Christian life, but it's not this rugged individualism where it's centered in yourself. The Christian life also isn't a ragged victimhood. There's nothing I can do. I'm sinful. I guess I just have to be weak. I guess I just have to be controlled by the moods and emotions and hormones of my body because I am a victim. The Christian life is not either one of those things. It is a life in Christ Jesus and can claim power towards us today who believe. Let's look at a third description. This power, this immeasurable, this great power towards us is also a demonstrated power. It's a power that has demonstrated itself in history. You can look back in your Bible and say, this is what the power of God towards me today is like. Maybe you're still thinking, this is great. 
But what about my problems? What about my life situation? That might be good for someone else, but, but, but is that strong enough for me? Look at the illustration that Paul uses. And, and be humbled by your pride in your problems. Verse 20. Oh, you of little faith. Verse 20. This power, according to the working of His great might, that, verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's the same power. It's demonstrated in the person of Christ. God has powerfully displayed His power in raising Christ from the dead. All the things that you've been learning about the resurrection are showing you what the power of God is like. The same power God used to raise Christ out of the dead. Well, in, in normal, in normal death, death situations, this is extraordinary, right? In a normal death, the moment of your death, the body instantly begins to shut down and cool and begins to cool by 1.5 degrees an hour until it reaches um, room temperature. Muscles begin to relax instantly. Um, your skin begins to pale because your blood stops pumping. Your eyes begin to open because your muscles have relaxed. Within two to six hours, rigor mortis takes effect. Blood begins to pool. Three hours, the body begins to stiffen. As, as the days initially pass, bacteria begins to eat away at the tissues inside of your body, causing bloating and tremendous swelling, and then body tissues burst. And that's where smell comes from, the stink of death. That's normal. That's, that's normal death. Your body is just completely shutting down. But in Christ's death, it was even more hopeless his back was lacerated by flogging to the point where he could have probably died by the blood that he lost, even from the whips. On the cross, his heart completely collapsed and failed. He suffocated. His lungs and his heart was stabbed with a cruel Roman spear. And yet, this power raised him out of the dead. And not only that, raised him into a glorious body, like the body you and I will one day have. Powerful, glorious, undying. This power also seated Christ above all others. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that Christ didn't have that position beforehand, but that's the power of his glorious resurrection and ascension, bringing him to that position of authority. 
and fulfilling all of God's promises. It's a demonstrated power. It's a demonstrated power. And our hearts need to be humbled by that demonstration. Number number four. Actually, I lied. There's five points. Number four, it's a power in union. It's a power in union. This is not just the same kind of power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the very same power that unleashes all of the strength that we have in the Christian life. Don't believe me? Ask Peter. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or, look with me at Romans 6. Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 4 says this, We have been buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection with Him. The theological concept that we've already talked about is this is union with Christ. You are intimately close with Christ. The Bible describes this in many ways. It it speaks of us as a branch on his vine. It speaks of us as his bride. And he is the husband. And perhaps most powerfully, most dynamic, most amazing, and the illustration that Paul goes to in Ephesians is, is we are his body. Christ acts as our substitute, and we receive all of His benefits. What happened to Him happens to us. We are, we are dead with Him, we are buried with Him, we are raised with Him, we are even exalted and enthroned with Him. Matter of fact, look what Ephesians 2 says about your life. You, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was you. That is you. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And beloved, verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And all of this is true. The believer has this true of them. This is their reality now. The grace of God has changed their reality from death to life. 
I love Colossians 3, 3. It says we are hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden with Christ. That means you are secure, you are concealed, you are kept safe. It means no one can find you and snatch you away. You are hidden with Christ in God. That's why Ephesians 1, 3 thunders when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Right? You are united with Christ. And the application to this point is clear. There is nothing you need that you don't already have in Christ. The believer's problem is to know and to understand the glories of the power towards them and the calling that they have and to walk in obedience to those things. The believer's chore and calling is not to somehow find some sort of new experience or new new resource that they don't already have. They have these things in Christ. So you can be content in every circumstance. You can be peaceful in every circumstance. You can be assured in every circumstance. And you can be expectant and courageous in every circumstance because of the power that is towards you. Number five, last description. One more, one more description. This is my favorite one. It's a show-off power. Not a bad kind of show-off, like, man, that person's such a show-off there on, on that slip and slide over there, showing off, grabbing that pig head. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a different kind of show-off. It's, 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 it's a worthy kind of show-off. You, you should show these things off. This, this should be proclaimed. It's, it's, a, it's a purposeful kind of power. It has a point of showing off something amazing. God is demonstrating his power towards us who believe in the gospel for a purpose. God wants to demonstrate his power towards you who believe in Christ for a purpose. To show off something amazing. What is it? Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that. So that. In the coming ages. That includes this age. And the next age. He might show. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is what the gospel is, is, is aiming at. That's what the gospel is trying to show off in your life. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ That is what God is aiming at to be displayed all over your life. His kindness. His grace. It needs to be repeated. It always needs to be repeated. I need to repeat it to myself. You were not saved 
because of your graciousness or your goodness. You, you were not saved because of anything in you. You were dead. You were saved. Now listen to this. You were saved because you, my friend, were a great opportunity to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you. You were saved because you were sinful. You were saved because God wants to show off the tremendous grace in his power and the riches of his might. You were saved because God wants to show what his power can do in transforming an individual from darkness to light. You were saved to show off the riches of God's kindness and grace. You weren't saved because you were great. You were saved because you were a great candidate to show off God's greatness. That's an assuring thought, isn't it? All of those are assuring thoughts, aren't they? What is assurance of salvation then? What does it look like in a believer's life to have assurance of salvation? Four points. And by four points, I really mean four points this time. When you believe this glorious gospel, it will result in these four things. You will have affection. It's not just emotional movement whipped this way and that. It's, 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 it's affection for God. It's a desire for God. It's a love for God, an enjoyment of God, a desire to be with God, a a love for the fellowship in God's word, a love for the worship of God with God's people. It is an affection for God. A true believer is known by their affection. A true believer is also known by their humility. You will know that, that, that you were saved to show off God's greatness. Not yours. A believer will also be known by their obedience. A believer will be changed from the inside out and eager to obey and walk in the glorious calling to which they have been called. You will say, what can I do for the one who calls me by his glorious grace? It says, I can do all things that he calls me to. Through his power. And it's also endurance. Affection, humility, obedience, and endurance. you'll, You'll be known because the power of God is unshakable, unrivaled. And you will make it to the end. That is what assurance of salvation looks like. Affection, humility, obedience, and endurance. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for... Um, This time, thank you for all the truths in your word that we've heard this short little week. I pray that you would transform our present through the understanding of our past, our present, and our future. I pray that you would sanctify your church, even the piece of it that is here. And help us to walk in a manner worthy of your call. Help us to be immovable steadfast, always abounding in your work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.